0: intelligent than us. Well, if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1 800 735 0230. That's 1 800 735 0230 for a copy of today's program. Good day. The Outdoor Art Club of Mill Valley hosts its 18th annual Garden Art and Architecture Home Tour on April 26th from 9.30 a.m. to 2.00 p.m. The five homes on this tour were built between 1909 and 1941. From a beautifully restored craftsman to an exemplar of a remodel using advanced green building practices and sustainable technologies, these homes exhibit an astonishing range of possibilities seen by these creative and artistic homeowners. The tour starts at the Outdoor Art Club, 1 West Blithdale Avenue, and attendees can shuttle, cycle, or stroll to all five properties easily. Tickets are $35 to $45 and can be purchased by calling 415-381-5204. All proceeds benefit Outdoor Art Club's charity fund. For more info, visit www.outdoorartclub.org. And this is 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley. 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is three minutes. Excuse me, the time is a minute past three o'clock. Up next is Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. I'm so, I'm so, what is that? Um, uh, I'm on a a uh, (laughs) knee-jerk reaction. I never speak until I hear my my theme, and I didn't give it to Erica. It's the um, theme from... Three-penny opera by Bertolt Brecht. I always like that little whiff, whiff of Weimar, the Weimar Republic. You remember Berlin between the two world wars? Right, I remember that period. It's still my favorite period in human history. Are we there yet? Has, you know, has the era, what is it, officially changed? Today is the day that we celebrate the... um, the death of the titanic yes a 100 years ago today i think it's today was it yesterday tomorrow anyway the titanic definitely marked the end of an era you remember that was uh leading up to world war one they called that the great war and then um uh, came the good war that was world war two wow the 20th century you know <laughs> surrealism um i remember i remember making a note um two this morning right those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities right that was the 20th century anyway i think that was voltaire yes if you believe absurdities you may commit atrocities right turn on the news um It'll turn you to stone. I remember when I picked that name years ago. I can't remember which disaster de jour it was. Uh, actually, my favorite quote has to be Albert Einstein's. You remember Al Einstein? He said, <laughs> he said, he said, two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the universe. <laughs> anyway, Titanic sank. It's still down there. The dead are still dead. A century has passed. And now we have the movie. Uh, they keep running the clips from the movie on the TV. Uh, I keep turning on what's called fiction film because I can't handle the news Uh, didn't sleep a wink last night I remember when they found the wreck they told us that divers will be going down and taking stuff off the wreck and I thought oh no they'll protect it today I hear that at least 700 items have been looted from the Titanic it's down to what I don't know a mile and a half two miles uh How the hell do they know how many items are taken off the wreck? Never mind, grave robbers (laughs) always carry off a few, a few things, a few ghosts. You know, think of the pharaoh and his little toys, the cats. Uh, Oh, in the movie, there was that jewel Kate Winslet gets this necklace, this jewel. What's it do? Ruby. I think it was green. Anyway, the ancient woman who lived uh, to uh, be in the picture, right? (laughs) She threw away. uh, She threw away the necklace, her priceless necklace. Uh, I can't even remember if that was a true story. Well, I guess it is now. I mean, a movie's much more real than uh, anything that happens, uh, never mind, last night I started wringing my hands like a crazy woman because I can't stand the news, it's really disabling me, that's no, no joke, uh, some of us simply can't handle what's going down, uh, uh, let us fly away to where the news does not depress us every day, first of all, I wrote a terrific essay. I've written it, oh, 20 times. They tried to explain that most of the madness comes from the guys, you know. 85% of the violence is male violence. And maybe the women who perpetuate 15% of the violence, (laughs) maybe they could do a better job. And then I see how that's, that's no use. Women are learning fast fast, fast uh, if you look at the news you will see that uh, the girls are carrying guns, yes, carry a gun don't carry a grudge I think uh, I've listened to myself talk long enough I go on and on and on about uh, about the ways in which we could educate young men and young women uh, you know, how we could tenderize these folks and make them good Buddhists, that kind of thing. I don't know. I think it's kind of a hand wringing that uh, some of us are a little sick of. What I finally did last night was I, I, I flipped around in my files and I thought, what did I used to do in April? What did I used to do in April back when I, <laughs> when I was still hopeful? And I thought, oh yes, National Poetry Month. April is the, well, it's not the cruelest month, you know. Well, it is. uh, Give or take a few weeks in late October. (laughs) That's the murderous month, right? Uh, I think yes. I think we'll talk about the poets. Uh, I associate, for some peculiar reason, I associate the poets and literature with the feminine. Ah, I always think of male poets as, what do I call them? Honorary women. <laughs> you no, know, they're they're in touch with their inner woman. I remember Henry Miller used to say that he had to get in touch. He said Anaïs Nin told him to get in touch with his inner woman. You know, write a letter to his son or something. He said, "Well, that doesn't mean you you have to be gay." No, 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 that's not the way. No. Uh, Anyway, let me read you a little essay about Emily Dickinson because it comforts me. I guess that's all I can do these days, Uh, comfort myself and hope that I share some of these feelings with some of you. Um, This little piece is called Emily Dickinson's Loaded Gun, I quote from the great lady herself, born 1830, died 1886. That means, right, she would have been 56 years old. Died of Bright's disease. The doctors called it a revenge of the nerves. Emily writes, I like a look of agony because... I know it's true. Now, I take that as a statement of her honesty. I remember the the woman, Camille Paglia, once said that this proves that Emily Dickinson was a sadist. I I finally understood in my old age that, uh, what is it, literature is more about the reader than the writer, uh... We can interpret these things. We can make them mean what we want them to mean. Art reveals the spectator more than it does the artist. Uh. Anyway, I have to ask myself, what did Emily Dickinson mean when she wrote, My life had stood a loaded gun. These thought rhymes of Emily Dickinson, they have been my zen Coen's all my life. I come back to Emily Dickinson at Easter every year in search of a resurrection. April means that plunge back into poetry, into the erotic. I guess April is the cruelest month, the time when we try to come alive once more, when we revive the emotions. These days, when the fear of feeling is everywhere around us, it's harder than ever to let go of what they call rational order, you know, <laughs> the linear thought, the thought that leads to death. Uh, I mean, you can't make poetry out of thought. Poetry is passion. Linear thought must be seduced by wild mind, by the fires of ecstasy. Emily Dickinson was, well, she was an oracle. She was Delphic in her songs. She made mind music. She heard the grass growing. (laughs) She wrote, quote, Which craft is wiser than we? the conventional Christianity of her time, her age. That was not her cup of tea. She writes, I do not respect doctrines. She talks about her family, she says. They are religious except me. They address an eclipse every morning, whom they call their father. (laughs) She says, there is that which is called an awakening in the church. (laughs) I guess, footnote here, I guess she means that uh, rebirthing. That, uh, what is that? Jimmy Carter had one, but that, uh, uh, yes, it's an awakening, yes. uh, Jimmy Baldwin had one. Uh, She says, Emily Dickinson says, I know of no choicer ecstasy than to see Mrs. Sweetser roll out in crepe every morning. I suppose she means to intimidate Antichrist. At least it would have that effect on me." Emily Dickinson wrote that her business was circumference. I think, yes, I think my business is synthesis. I was reading George Eliot's novel Middlemarch, and uh, George Eliot was convinced that the mysteries of human nature surpass the mysteries of redemption. Hmm. Eliot was searching for the ineffable. Ah, Dickinson writes, Impossibility like wine exhilarates the man who tastes it. Possibility is flavorless. Or as Gertrude Stein put it, if a thing can be done, why do it? (laughs) That's such a hard one for most folks. Uh, Be unique or don't bother. Anyway, For all these poets, consciousness is to the soul, as syllable is to sense. These women, they could be sensual and cerebral, all in the same sentence. They know the gun is loaded. They know that thought and feeling are not separate, that the mind and the body are part of the same package. Back in 1870, Emily Dickinson wrote, if I read a book, if it makes my whole body so cold, no fire ever can warm me, I know that is poetry. If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. Now things were pretty stuffy in Amherst back in the in the middle of the nineteenth century and still Emily spoke of what she called ecstasy in living. In eighteen fifty six, her brother Austin married Susan Gilbert and set up house next door, and Emily had this fierce relationship with Susan. Uh If you read her biographies, you can get all the details. Uh, I recommend Richard B. Sewell's 1974 biography. Uh, since then, there have been any number of biographies insisting on... Uh, well, let's call it the androgyny of Emily Dickinson. Uh, all the biographies tell us about Emily's quarrels with Susan on the subject of religion and about the failure of their relationship. Um, I guess I guess Susan broke Emily's heart. Uh, Emily writes to her, Though, in that last day, Susan... This Jesus Christ you love, remark, he does not know me. There is a darker spirit, will not disown its child. So where was Emily coming from? (laughs) She writes, I see New Englandly. Right, um. She went to school at Amherst Academy and in 19, well, no, 18, 1847, she entered Mount Holyoke, female seminary. Very early on, she became what's called low in health. She withdrew, living always in her brick house, staying within its grounds going deeper and deeper into the house when the doorbell rang. Footnote here, I think that was called, even in those days, chronic depression. She told her friend Thomas Wentworth Higginson, quote, All men say what to me? So she restricted the number... (laughs) ...of questioners, speakers. Uh, Higginson paid a great deal of attention to Emily's father. She found him thin, dry, and speechless. In 1862, Emily Dickinson writes, "...my father only reads on Sunday. He reads lonely and rigorous books." I have a brother and sister. Sister was Lavinia, born 1833. I like that, exactly a hundred years older than I. Mm. Emily writes, My mother does not care for thought. Father is too busy with his briefs to notice what we do. He buys me many books then begs me not to read them because he fears they juggle the mind. In June of 1874, Emily Dickinson's father died. She writes, Though it is many nights, my mind never comes home. A year later, her mother became an invalid and suffered paralysis until she died in November of 1882. Dickinson writes, We were never intimate mother and children while she was our mother. When she became our child, the affection came. Now, these Victorian Americans have a lot to teach us. Uh, I don't know, it seems to me that... Their suffering is certainly as deep as ours. I don't know if their world was worse than ours. They certainly had their share of violence. That civil war was no joke. Emily, I think, is not to be pitied. Uh, she had celestial evenings by a blazing wood fire. She had music. She had fun, rampant fun. And uh, feasting, she had solitude, she called solitude that polar privacy. A soul admitted to itself. Emily did not abuse leisure. She, uh, she lived, she baked, she gardened, she attended to her sewing and knitting, and she wrote those hundreds and hundreds of letters that are as fascinating as the poems, she played the piano, she walked with her dog, Carlo, quote, large as myself, that my father bought me, (laughs) that's the end of that quote, I think Emily's father cannot have been entirely thin and dry, he gave her this big dog. I think of Carlo. I'm trying to remember the dog that belonged to Emily Bronte. Forget his name. They always have these huge dogs. Here I am, stuck with my silly cat, Dementia. Anyway, Emily Dickinson fled from distractions and from conventional society, all just in order to develop her imagination, her sixth sense. A mystic who lives among orthodox religious institutions and structured belief systems in Massachusetts in the 19th century needed to be alone. Emily's niece writes, Once I repeated to Aunt Emily what a neighbor had said that time must pass very slowly for her, who never went anywhere, Emily flashed back with Robert Browning's line, Time? Why, time was all I wanted. (laughs) Let's face it, Emily knew who she could talk to. She writes, The soul selects her own society, then shuts the door. The poet's tragedy, if it is tragedy, is to love alone. Dickinson writes, Till it has loved, no man or woman can become itself. Like Emily Bronte, across the pond, right across the Atlantic. She is a solo act. But she has the angst of an existentialist. She writes, It might be lonelier without the loneliness. The poet who cannot be heard in the world must go deep into herself. She had no listeners then. She writes, This is my letter to the world that never wrote to me. Emily's poems were iconoclastic. The world had no use for her voice at first. (laughs) Yes, the, the Boston Christian Register published a few verses. Yes, well, let's see. Here's a review. Ah. <laughs> the Reverend Brooke Hereford. Read some uh, verses, and he writes, One of the most offensive bits of contemptuous Unitarianism that I have met with. Emily, in her verses, had compared Christ's coming on earth in behalf of the Father, compared it with John Alden's service in behalf of Miles Standish in Longfellow's poem. That is, well, sort of, well, sort of, not pimping, but anyway. Uh, Emily is quickly, quickly, well, she's, she's sardonic. She's irreverent. She's bold, witty, and uh, I would say she's quirky, 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 quirky. Uh, she says, uh, she writes, quote, God, God is a distant stately lover unquote I guess the Reverend found that offensive Uh, among Emily Dickinson's earthly loves her sister-in-law Susan does seem to be the most selfish and sadistic her brother Alston's later love Mabel Loomis Todd seems to be more sympathetic toward Emily's life and work with Thomas Higginson, she's the one who published the poems in 1891. One of the first readers was Alice James, the sister of Henry and William James. Alice wrote in her diary in 1892. It is so reassuring to hear the English pronouncement that Emily Dickinson is fifth-rate. The English have such a capacity for missing quality. The robust evades them equally with the subtle. (laughs) My essay goes on at great length to talk about Mabel Todd, the mistress of Austin, Emily's brother. She seems to be the one who got it. Apparently, Emily's poems yanked her out of her depression, having a wonderful effect on her mentality and her... Spirituality. Uh, She says, The poems open the door into a wider universe than the little sphere surrounding me which had so often hurt and compressed me. They helped me nobly through a trying time. Their sadness and helplessness sometimes was so much bitterer than mine that I was helped as if A Kingdom Cared. I remember writing that over my typewriter in college, yes. A Kingdom Cares. A Kingdom Cares. Uh, I wish I had time to read you Mabel Todd's discovery of uh, Emily's sense of humor, Mm, which is is wonderful. Uh, I have to get off the air now. Uh, I wish I had time to write you about resurrection at Easter time. Why we always go to the poets when things get to be too much for us. When the days are too dark, the dark birds of history hover over us. Uh, Guns, guns everywhere. This has been Jennifer Stone. Uh, I hope I didn't depress you today. I'll be back on the air again next Tuesday. Till then, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Drop the shadow. Saturday, April 14th, from 10 a.m. to noon, rain or shine, the First Voice Media Action Program invites you to our annual community open house. You will hear from frontline community activists, including many social justice organizations, and you'll learn how the First Voice Media Action Program is connected to your community. So please join us at the station or tune in Saturday, April 14th, from 10 a.m. to noon, right here at KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley, 1929 Martin Luther King Jr. Way, just north. Of University Avenue. For more information, please call 510 848 6767.